0: Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Obviously, the past year has been something of a challenge, mostly because of COVID-19. You don't need me to tell you that it has killed and sickened hundreds of thousands of people worldwide And changed all of our lives in a variety of ways, both in how we are trying to cope with losing people from this disease, or cope with having the disease, or avoid it, or the economic fallout, or how we reorganize so much of just everything. But amidst all that, there's something else that we've been struggling with, and that's denialism. Even though we're in the midst of a world historic event, We also have a lot of people who are denying that COVID-19 exists or is a problem or is something that they have to, you know, help mitigate by getting vaccinated. And that denialism, uh, either people saying COVID-19 is a hoax or not getting a COVID-19 vaccine is going to make this whole world historic crisis much, much worse. And it's infuriating. It's infuriating for me because I am somebody who likes data, I like information, and I would like to think that, you know, that forms the basis of a lot of my worldviews, I hope. But that's not the case for everybody. Not everybody is persuaded by information. Lots of people are persuaded by good stories, or sentiment, or appeals to their pre-existing values. And that can be really really hard when boring nerds like me and maybe you want to try to persuade them because what we find meaningful and persuasive is not necessarily what they find meaningful and persuasive so i talked to sarah and jack gorman whose book denying to the grave is all about denialism and fuzzy thinking and why people believe things that are maybe not to their benefit, that don't have good data supporting them. And also how we and also institutions can talk to those people. Because just lecturing them uh is not going to do it. The CDC or the WHO giving a press conference and just putting information out there, that's not going to persuade anybody to get vaccinated or take care of themselves. Because this is a history podcast, I also talked to them about how other denialism has cropped up um, prior to COVID-19. We talked about AIDS denialism a bit and also vaccine denialism and about the demagogues and the leaders who aggravate this. And that is a really important part of this because, as you'll hear, if we don't effectively communicate to people about why such and such is real or why they should get vaccinated, some other charismatic demagogue who's usually a cynical person trying to enrich themselves or trying to build power or trying to get famous somebody else will so we need to step up our game on being communicators and i know this is a little bit of a different episode than what we normally do here but i thought it was important so please enjoy this interview with sarah and jack gorman Sarah and Jack Gorman, hello.
1: Hi, Joe, it's great to be here with you.
2: Hi.
0: Great to have you, thank you for uh, coming on. Uh, really enjoyed your book, Denying to the Grave. And um, well, will let you sum it up. Um, what is the book? Uh, why did you write it? And what were your goals with writing it?
2: Sure, so the book arose out of sort of a simultaneous interest on my part and Jack's part in two different forms of science denial. So I was very interested in this issue of the anti-vaccine movement and why that was persisting and why our efforts to inform people better about vaccines were not working. And around the same time, um, coincidentally, Jack was becoming more interested in this question of why people own guns um, when all the evidence suggests that you are actually less safe in your home with a gun. And when we sort of crossed paths and started talking about these issues, we realized that there were a number of other areas where science denial was creeping into the public discourse and causing people to make decisions that weren't good for their health. So we started out looking into all of these different issues, and we we developed a series of themes, psychological themes, uh, across them where we could really talk about what are the underlying um, factors that make people prone to believe things that aren't true in science. And our goal was really to do just that, to really look at the psychology, um, because we were, we were both a little bit frustrated, I would say, with the, the general discussion around these issues, which is that people need to be better informed, or they need to be given more facts, um, which you know doesn't work a lot of the time. And we, we felt that there was something deeper going on. So we wanted to get across those psychological principles, and that's really what the book is structured around.
0: Yeah, what you're describing is often known as like knowledge deficit model. So I think in a lot of like science communication, other communication, the idea is that once people have good information, they will make good decisions based on that information. But you're saying that's not always the case, right?
2: Right. It's very frequently not the case. And, you know, I realized this very quickly with the vaccine issue, because Many of the people who were buying into the idea, for example, that vaccines cause autism were very well educated and had no problem accessing the information they needed to, to see that it's really to the contrary. So it made me start to think, this must not be about knowledge, this must be about something else. And it turns out it's about a whole host of things, everything from sort of identity politics to um, faulty risk perception. Um, to, you know, our basic intolerance of uncertainty. So there were a lot of sort of basic psychological factors that go into this and make it so that giving people facts can often do nothing.
0: So I want to get into the specifics of some of the um, conspiracy theories and maybe like also sort of like what to call them, like uh, patterns of popular fuzzy thinking that you get into the book. Um, you talk about a lot of things, like you talk about vaccine denialism, you talk about people who are not okay with GMOs, which are, for the most part, they're fine. Uh, I am a big old leftist, but that's something that I disagree with a lot of my like friends and comrades on. <laughs> uh, you talk about why owning guns is actually like not great for you, which is an argument I've had with people when I have explained why I do not have any firearms in my house, because it would be a dangerous thing to have. Like, seriously, that part of the book resonated for me because I've had that very argument where somebody said, well, what are you afraid of? And I'm like, all the numbers say that, like, the most, you know, likely person that I'm going to shoot is myself. But anyways, um, I wanted to ask particularly about um, Peter Duisburg and anti-AIDS nihilism. Uh, who was that guy? What context was he operating in? How did he become influential? And what damage did he end up end up doing?
2: Yeah, so peter Duisburg is an interesting case of what we talk about in the book as a charismatic leader we have a series of sort of case studies where where we talk about different people who sort of lead anti-science movements and they're characterized by a number of factors which i can get into in a second when i talk about uh peter Duisburg. so just to give a sense of who he is he actually so part of what makes this complicated is that he has very solid scientific credentials. He was an infectious disease specialist uh, fo- focusing actually on viruses and he was well respected in his field. Um, but he sort of veered off the path when he said that he thought that HIV was not the cause of AIDS and you know he and he thought that antiretrovirals were poison basically and that they would they would harm you instead of help you. And the real damage he did, um, you know, he disseminated these ideas and some people believed him, some people didn't, but the real big damage he did was that um, the the president of South Africa, Mbeki, at at around a time when AIDS was really rampant in South Africa, um, sort of came across Peter Duesberg's ideas and became an avid AIDS denialist and, had peter Duisburg on his sort of scientific quote-unquote scientific committee to address aids and and he was a key advisor so he blocked um, Mbeki blocked a lot of antiretrovirals from being delivered to south africa and and you know, many, many, many people died as a result because they they weren't able to get treatment. He also, you know, instilled in people this distrust, sort of, of Western medicine that, that you know people were sometimes prone to anyway. And he and he also, you know, that persists. I think some of those attitudes still persist, and and there's some inkling of that still in, in certain South African populations where there's a little bit of a fear of the of antiretrovirals. So. Very, 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 um, very uh, extremely bad situation, to say the least. And Peter Duesberg, if you actually. So I spent time reading some of his writing, which was hard to do because it's it's just so it's so upsetting, actually. But he participates in a series of, of things that sort of define charismatic leaders. So he he sort of lures his audience by saying that he has special information that nobody else can give to them. And that makes people sort of feel intrigued and special and they feel close to the person. And that's something that charismatic leaders do all the time. He also talks about how he's been sort of abused and pushed to the sidelines of the scientific establishment, which is another thing that charismatic leaders um, talk about that they're from the fringes and they're, they're, they're not part of the establishment. And so that makes them more relatable and they call for sort of a revolution. And, and those are all things that tie the group together that follow them. So um, he's sort of a classic charismatic leader um, with, again, many of them have good scientific credentials and so it can be very difficult to uh, undo the damage.
0: Yeah, um, it always remind, it reminds me about how, like, it's usually not hard to find somebody with a PhD who will say anything and appear on some kind of, like, news program or will get a quote in some sort of thing saying COVID's not real or, you know, vaccines cause autism or that kind of thing. It also reminded me about how, because he was a respected scientist earlier in his life and with other work his rhetoric about AIDS was maybe taken more seriously. We think this guy is an is a expert in one area, therefore he's an expert in general. Kind of like, maybe this is a weird comparison, but that section reminded me about how Linus Pauling did a bunch of really amazing work early in his life, but he also promoted a whole bunch of pseudoscience later in his life, and now he's why a bunch of Americans really overvalue the efficacy of vitamin C, because he's Linus Pauling he ended up kind of sadly pushing pseudoscience later on. Do you think that's a fair comparison or a fair assessment that like expertise in one area gives the kind of like illusion of expertise in general? Is that at play? I think the Linus
1: Pauling analogy is exactly apt. He's kind of the archetype of this phenomenon, which is very troubling and which we don't really understand. We understand why most of us, the rest of us, are prone to believe these false narratives. But it's very hard to understand how experts like Duisburg or Linus Pauling suddenly go off the path and endorse things that are clearly unscientific. <clears throat> I mean, in Duisburg's case, it was really so far uh, off the mark um, that it's almost tragic to see the way that he evolved in his thinking and when went, went, you know wild on that uh, pathway and Linus Pauling is a very good example of it.
0: Which leads us into how did a gastroenterologist become the spokesperson for the anti-vaccine movement? Um, you also talk about Andrew Wakefield, which is a name I think a lot of people would be familiar with. Um But he's kind of infamous. How did he become the center of this movement that now (laughs) is threatening us as we're trying to get people vaccinated against COVID?
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, when you mentioned expertise in one area makes people think expertise in all areas, and that it's true. Many people don't even know that Andrew Wakefield was because he's been sort of... um, No, he's he's
0: Mr. Wakefield.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Andrew Wakefield was a gastroenterologist, um, And so what what does he know about basically a neurological disorder? You know, very strange kind of thing for him to be wading into. Um, and you know, I think he he what he is still a v- very charismatic he I mean, I watched many videos of him, actually, which are very sort of scary, I think, to watch. And he talks about being the lone wolf again, who's being he literally says, I'm the lone wolf who's literally being persecuted by the medical establishment um, and the medical establishment. And he uses this this thing that people are nervous about, which is that the pharmaceutical companies are trying to trick you and they they are trying to get take your money and they don't really not don't have your best interest in mind. And, you know, he's saying they're persecuting me and I'm going to save you from the establishment, which is harming your children um and so that's again similar to Duisburg, a very common charismatic leader move um and he and he ma- creates this very strong in-group by saying you know all you people who are with me now are we're going to fight the establishment and the pharma companies and the evil doctors who are trying to hurt your children and you know he that way he draws people in, people who may have a little bit of an inkling of fear about certain things or just prone to being worried about their children, which is common for everyone, I, th- I, would, I would say. Um, he draws them in and he really scares them and then he creates this very strong group. And the group dynamic is very, very powerful. So I think that's sort of the way he's become the icon of that movement and You know, he actually probably makes a good amount of money off of sort of alternative treatments that he sells now for autism Which is which is another thing um, That a lot of charismatic leaders do um, that they profit off of this, which is very um, troubling as well
0: Yeah um, I know you don't touch on it much, but like it's something that I have wondered like what is it for him? Um, you know, it's not in your book, but I know that he also has advocated for Uh, his own like Wakefield branded vaccine alternatives or treatment alternatives, which is a whole other thing. But the people who are inside of this conspiracy theory or inside of this kind of like um, bubble of, you know, fuzzy or erroneous thought, like what's in it for them? What do you what do you get? How does it feel to be a member of that kind of like uh, that kind of group?
1: You know, one of the things in this case with autism and vaccines, is that you have a group of people who are really hurting the parents of children with autism, who feel for their children, want their children to uh, do better, um, and to some extent become desperate, looking for cures and treatments. And in, in that setting, People are very, very vulnerable, and that's exactly where a charismatic leader can step in and make his mark by exploiting this kind of fear and sadness that parents of children children with autism experience. i was just going to say what they get out of it is group membership, and that's something we talk a lot about in the book, that you feel all alone when you have a child with a developmental disability and you even blame yourself. Parents who have children with those kinds of issues often say, you know, it happened because there's something wrong with my genes, or I took a medicine that I shouldn't have taken while I was pregnant, or any one of a number of things, they blame themselves. They're looking for relief, and they're looking for people that they can relate to who are in the same situation. And if you embrace one of these conspiracy theories, then you have a whole group that you suddenly belong to. And that really, really reinforces the conspiracy theory.
0: So I know Sarah touched on this earlier, defining what a charismatic leader is. And I I do want to come back to that because in the book, you make it clear that a charismatic leader is not necessarily a leader who has charisma. It's not just somebody who's like, a really good public speaker or like really interesting to talk to. uh, How do you define that kind of figure? We've already talked about some like distinct, distinct examples, but in general, what are the markers or warning signs of, uh, is of a charismatic leader? And also how do they differ from somebody who is taking authority from a different kind of, um, you know, source of legitimacy, like traditional authority or like legal rational authority? How is charisma different from those?
2: So for the charismatic leader, it is sort of a very specific idea. And as you said, I touched on some of the elements before, but basically there are a couple of characteristics that really define a charismatic leader. So one is that they, they, they have to be somebody who perceives themselves as not being part of the establishment that's really important that's and that's a key distinction from the other kinds of authority um, they are specifically drawing on the fact that they are somewhat from the sidelines and often talk about being persecuted by the establishment so that's that's number one um, number two is that when they when they create group membership all leaders create some kind of group membership but the charismatic leaders create a particularly strong brand of group membership by very clearly delineating who is the us of the group and who is the them of the outgroup. and you know in the worst case scenarios you know in group out group can lead to violence and persecution of people who are perceived to be on the outgroup. group um, but that's something that charismatic leaders really cultivate um, to create a very strong bond on the inside, and um, you know they they do that by again by by set, you know really casting an evil light on the others, and, and making sure that people understand that they have been persecuted, and that these other people are trying to harm them. They also talk about issues in a way that's very ideological um, and, and vague and draws on big principles. So if you listen to a Andrew Wakefield's speech, he saw, he often doesn't say anything about vaccines. Like He doesn't even talk about autism vaccines. He doesn't get into the specifics. He makes these broad sweeping statements about the establishment that's harming your children and don't you want to make sure that your children are safe? And it becomes about these very broad principles that are actually kind of hard to argue with, of course, everyone wants to make sure their children are safe. Um, and so they, they make it very compelling by sort of clouding people's ability to take apart the premises that are obviously flawed. So it's different from uh, an authority figure who, who gleans their authority from more traditional sources because the traditional authority figure relies on, usually relies on their place in the establishment, actually, as opposed to, to being on the fringes, to legitimize themselves. Um, and they also don't focus so much on, on an idea of an in-group and out-group. They they more just um, draw people in by, um, you know, making sure that um, they get their ideas across and, you know, that they can inform people about things using their authority, but they don't pay that much attention to, you know, this idea of the in-group and the out-group.
0: One of the, uh, one of the things that also, I think a lot of people are thinking about as we talk about this is that if you have somebody in your life who is anti-vaccine or very specifically doesn't want to get vaccinated against COVID-19, or and I mentioned this conversation I've had. We haven't talked about guns in this episode, but we, but that's also something in the book. Somebody who is like people who like buy guns because they think it is like a protection for them, as opposed to a hazard you can have around your house. Um, how do you how do you talk to the people in your life who are maybe engaging in this activity or not getting vaccinated? How do you how do we bring them over?
1: Well, the first thing is to understand what Sarah said in the. Fr- beginning, which is that simply lecturing them and providing them with facts is probably going to have the opposite effect. It's not going to bring them around. What we have to do is try to understand what the basis is for their holding that belief. Usually it's because they're afraid of something. Um, They're afraid that their vaccine is going to harm them. Or they're afraid that someone's going to break into their house and they should have a gun. Um, A lot of these anti-science ideas start out with irrational fears. And so we have to first identify those. And the second thing we do is we try to draw out what the person really knows about the field. Sometimes if you simply have a person explain the basis for their belief, they'll talk themselves out of it because they'll start to realize that there are all kinds of logical inconsistencies as they go through it. So we approach it with empathy, with trying to find common ground, with respect for their ideas. And once we get their trust, then we have a much better opportunity to use actual facts to correct some of their misguided notions.
0: I'm going to admit, like, I, I know that you are right about this. And it's so annoying because I wish that I could just like send somebody like, hey, here are the facts. And they're like, I am Christ. persuaded by facts. <laughs> Thank you. Like, this was a good exchange, but that's not how it works at all. Uh, but also in the book, you are critical of how institutions, public health institutions and scientific institutions, have sometimes engaged with the public. How do you think those organizations could do a better job of communicating and and engaging on a large scale? Like how have they, what mistakes have they made and how can they improve?
1: I think we've really seen it during this pandemic uh, that institutions like CDC and the World Health Organization do magnificent epidemiological work. They do great science but they don't have great expertise in communicating with the public and they tend to use an old fashioned model of waiting until they've got a lot of facts and then holding a press conference and then relying on journalists to carry the message that they're trying to give. And we now know that most people get their information about health and science on the internet, from social media. And, do not do not wait until things come out in traditional media. Do not rely on the traditional media to learn about what's going on in the health and science fields. And the institutions like CDC and FDA and World Health Organization just have not caught up with that. So that things happen at a very fast pace and they don't think, there's nobody at those agencies thinking, how is this going to be perceived by the public? We, we saw that even today, I think you might have seen the World Health Organization uh, is suddenly recommending that people go back to wearing masks when they're inside because of the Delta variant. Um, and the CDC is being silent about that, saying we're not changing our um, advice. That's not a, an acceptable approach because people like you and me and Sarah want the CDC to say something. We look to the CDC to give us some guidance. We want an explanation from the CDC about why it is that they disagree or don't disagree with the World Health Organization. And if they don't do that kind of thing, if they don't think about how these things appear to the public, then you can bet that somebody else is going to jump in and make up a story. And that story will be full of misinformation, but it'll be a very attractive theory that'll that'll attract a lot of attention. And so we are really calling for these agencies to completely revamp how their communication strategies to put a lot more time and effort and funds into public communication.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I really like that. You're saying that if they don't end up appealing to people's values and speaking in a way that's understandable, uh, somebody else will.
1: Exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: Yeah, uh, excellent. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon that you think is important to speak to?
1: I think, uh, you know, your interest in guns is obviously interesting to me. And one, one of the interesting things that when I get into these conversations with people is they right away assume that I want to argue about the Second Amendment with them. And regardless of what I think about the what the Second Amendment does or doesn't say, when I try to... Point out to them is that I'm not arguing whether or not you have a constitutional right to own a gun. I'm arguing with you about whether you want to make the decision to have the gun. It's still your choice whether to have one or not. And it's interesting to reframe the conversation that way away from this idea of what rights does somebody have to help them understand that they have a choice. Um, And that sometimes changes that conversation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's about like not abstract ideas of sort of like rights, but whether or not it's a good idea.
1: Exactly right.
0: Yeah. I I don't have a gun in my house because I don't want to I don't want to shoot myself, my wife or my kid.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. (laughs)
0: Uh, uh, Sarah, anything else that we haven't spoken to yet that you wanted to? uh, I know there's a lot in the book. We haven't also we haven't talked about GMOs either. But is there anything else you want to speak to?
2: I did just want to add to what Jack was saying earlier, and it's funny because I was going to jump in and, and give the example about the mask, the WHO mask thing, because I mm-hmm. think that's such a good example of, of where the CDC is going wrong. And what I think is at play there, which we were trying to address in the book, is that the CDC is not thinking about human psychology and they're not mm-hmm. being as scientific about communication as they are about everything else they do. So, you know, they're they're not realizing that when there's a void, when there's silence, people fill in the gaps. That's something that we talk about in one of our chapters. So, and they they just make up explanations as Jack said. So, that's a problem. You know, the question is sort of why are they not approaching this scientifically? Is it because they don't have enough manpower? Is it because they don't think that it's a scientific topic or like we're, it's not their job or what we you know what exactly is the issue. I think we need to get to the bottom of that and hopefully convince them that it is their job to approach these issues of communication scientifically, because there's a lot of good data out there about how to better communicate these things. And they're not making use of that. And that's you know definitely a huge problem.
0: Sarah and Jack Gorman, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having us. Once again, thank you very much to Sarah and Jack Gorman for their time and their thoughts. Their book is Denying to the Grave. It was fascinating. Uh, I really recommend it. And as always, we are a listener-supported podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. support the show. Uh, Our show is written, edited, and produced by me, Joe Streckert. Uh, Our website and visual assets are by Sarah Giffro in Upswept Creative. Uh, We are recorded, edited, and everythinged in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.